Welcome back to part two of my fabulous interview with Jonathan Pitts. It's not that I'm fabulous, it's that he's fabulous. A wealth of knowledge about improv history and his own contribution, his big contributions to improv. And one of the things I wanted to start with at this point was your interest in Joseph Campbell and how Joseph Campbell has influenced improv for you. Uh, I first became aware of Joseph Campbell when I was working with a theater company on the uh, near South Side of Chicago in a neighborhood called Pilsen. And um, that theater company was called Blue Rider Theater. And it named itself after the German expressionist movement, uh, Blau Rider. And um, what they would do is they would spend six months creating an original play, a devised play, and then running it for three months. And then uh, and they would make changes in the play as they went. They never wrote the official script until the final performance. And so uh, that was their process as to how they created theater. And I worked with them uh, as a house manager, a light board operator, soundboard operator, and took workshops with them. But through them um, is how I first was introduced to Joseph Campbell. And, uh, and then later Dell talked about Joseph Campbell. And so I was able to put the two together, obviously. But, um, you know, with Joseph Campbell, his special with Bill Moyers had just come out on uh, national public television. Yes. And so watching all those episodes with the people from the Blue Rider, that's when I really got much, much more aware of Joseph Campbell's work and his belief about it and his interest in it. And, you know, the fact that he used comparative, he was doing for mythology, what my training in liberal arts at cross currents did which is look you know he looked at mythology both as their own myths but all how they cross collaborate or not what makes them unique what makes them different you know uh, I, I, I'm paraphrasing but he said all gods are the same they just wear different masks based on the localities that they live in and you know so that was a really fascinating thing to me and then seeing you know when Dell in his period of uh, uh, when he's interested in group mind and he was talking about young and also uh, Campbell, he was having that influence. And I could see how between all those things, those influence the way people create and the way people uh, create whether spontaneously through improvisation or through device work or theatrical work. And as such, I also got very influenced by Joseph Campbell, like everybody else, the hero with a thousand faces, also the hero's journey, the two, probably the most seminal ones. And, you know, recognizing that you can be your own hero, that you don't have to be a hero to the rest of the world, you can be your own hero, puts that in your own hands, you know, uh, which to me was the original message of the first Star Wars, was not because somebody was uh, of the bloodline, but because they were able to get in touch with the, that higher power, that, uh, that, you know, the universal source and become their own hero. And again, that sort of created a democratization of heroes rather than it only coming from a specific class. And those lessons uh, felt very true to me and seeing how they work not only on an artistic level, but also on a psychological level and also a spiritual level, uh, I would say then that certainly influenced uh, a lot of my beliefs about how to live a life or how to engage with art, you know, and 
recognizing there's the journey to the above world, there's the journey to the underworld, there's the journey to yourself, there's the journey to another. I just came across yesterday this quote in a book that I read, and it blew me away because I thought it perfectly encapsulated a lot of how I feel about journeys. And also, you know, when I was talking earlier about the global improv walkabout and, you know, the transformative effect of transformations rather and how you can get there through journeys versus an adventure. Hang on, let me get the quote. It's by the uh, Japanese uh, poet Basho. Each day is a journey and the journey itself is home. That fit how I felt being on the global improv walkabout. Yeah. Every day, and, and I felt the same thing again, traveling in, in just last month. Every day is its own journey. When you are a foreigner, you, when you are an, almost like an immigrant, you are not the majority person there. You are the one who is on the journey. Each day is a journey. And as you get used to it, it's the journey itself that becomes your home. Which to me is also part of the reason why Bilbo Baggins at the end had that conflict because his home was his home, but his home was no longer his home. Right. Right. Yeah. Just I think I froze. You froze, but that's okay. I can we're still hearing your voice. So all right. so you know, I think that's part of the reason why Bilbo Baggins at the end had some of that struggle because he was home, but he also knew that his home now was in the journey which is why I think it made sense that later on he went out on the road, uh, you know, uh, uh, with multiple times. So I think that there is that thing where journey can transform you and then the journey becomes home. And that's why I love that quote so much. And I also feel like that's sort of the engagement of improvising is each improvisation is its own journey. Yes. And your comfort level with being at peace and serenity with ambiguity of not knowing where you are in that journey until the journey makes itself known. Once you get used to that, then the journey becomes its own home. And I used a catchphrase for many of my workshops before I discovered improv, the joy is in the journey. Yes. And yeah. it really applies to the millions of people that are in some kind of recovery or 12 step program. It's, it's, really out of Campbell itself too. Um, so I, I think it's so hundred percent, hundred percent. I started going to uh, my first 12 step group when I was 28, because I grew up in an alcoholic home and I first started going to adult children's alcoholics. I did that for about five years. Ever since then, I've been going to Al-Anon. I've gone to other 12 step groups. Some fit, some don't. Right. Uh, I'm also a sex abuse survivor. So I've gone through stuff with that. And I also started doing therapy, uh, beginning therapy when I was uh, 28. And I've had different therapists at different times for different focuses. And, you know, those are all different journeys. I once wrote in a, a piece that I put on for theater, I said, the longest journey is the first step inside yourself. Yes, yes. And I kind of thought you had some program in you. I kept thinking that because I'm also in um, Al-Anon and another one. Uh, I could be in all of them. Uh, I, <laughs> I, could, I could walk up to a podium and say, hi, I'm Margo. Um, I'm not a gambling addict and everything else would fit in with me. Right, 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 yeah. And I, um, you know, I often say the difference between the two is I say that 
improv taught me that it was okay to play as an adult. Yes. Whereas therapy and recovery taught me it's okay to live as an adult. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Another connection. So many connections. I've been thinking about Jungian uh, thought and the idea of the collective unconscious. You are frozen now. Okay. I was speaking of the collective unconscious by yes. Young's theory and how that's applicable as well in the, our discussion today. Absolutely. And again, one of the workshops that I took with Dell for a year was when he was in the process of creating and discovering group mind. Like that year's workshop, Dell had an assistant teacher, a guy named Jeffrey Court. And Jeffrey Court was a group psychologist. So Jeffrey, and it was either Jeffrey Court or Jeffrey McCord. I can't fully remember. It's been a long time, but Jeffrey was his assistant. So imagine Dell as an improv teacher and the assistant teacher is a group psychologist. And so the group psychologist would do warm-ups with us uh, uh, in the beginning and in the end, sometimes at the closing, and uh, would give us information about group psychology. And that's when Dell was exploring uh, young collective unconsciousness, synchronicity, uh, archetypes, and, and trying to apply them in different ways to improvisation through exercises that he would create either on his own or in collaboration with Jeffrey. Uh, and then, you know, out of that came his concept of Dell's concept of group mind. But, you know, uh, Jeffrey was there. And one of the things that Jeffrey said as a group psychologist that I always remember that blew me away is he said, individual psychology is different for every person but group psychology is always the same no matter the group. Whether it be a sewing circle or a group of generals, group psychology is always the same. And that was fascinating to me. Yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, and I'm sure Jeffrey got stuff out of it that helped him as a group psychologist being involved in that you know, workshop. And it was fun to explore archetypes, like how could you improvise archetypes or not, uh, uh, you know, and, and Dell had that moment, had had so much experience of like those moments when all of a sudden you and someone else are on the exact same page. How did you get there? Or you and a group are on the exact same page. How did you get there? What's the mechanism of that? How can you repeat it? What's the way to do it? You know, it's probably no surprise that like dealing with uh, some of the sources of that and the origins of that and, and that kind of exploration led Dell later on to become a witch. Because, you know, as a, uh, as a peaceful witch, it's still dealing with like positive magic and, you know, becoming like a sorcerer because you're pulling out sources to make something. One of my favorite quotes about art and therapy and recovery and art, you know, because it really is art too, uh, is, oh, it's, sorry, it's, it's one of my favorite quotes about art, magic, and recovery slash therapy, which goes as this. If you bring forth what is inside you, what is inside you will save you. If you don't bring forth what is inside you, what is inside you will destroy you. Can you repeat that again? I just love that. Yes. If you bring forth what is inside you, what is inside you will save you. If you don't bring forth what's inside you, what's inside you will destroy you. That's beautiful. I love that. Right. And it works for art and the artistic process. It works for 
spirituality. It works for magic if you're uh, a shaman or uh, Wiccan. And it also works for therapy and recovery, which is why I went back to saying that sometimes the, the longest step is that first step inside yourself. Right. You can do all these, you can go climb the mountains of Kilimanjaro and that may be a longer journey time-wise, but it may not be as difficult or as hard as taking that first step inside yourself. A powerful first step. And there's a lot of parallel. I've done some seminars for people in recovery using improv. And there's so and a lot of people are doing that now, but there's um so many parallels between the steps and improv. Yes. So I, I just think it's fascinating. But I want to get back to your relationship with Dell when you started studying with Dell and what your relationship was like and what what how how you found Dell as a teacher or mentor. Well, I knew Dell at a very different time period than other people. So, you know, it's like trying to talk about when you knew Picasso. Like if you knew Picasso when he was in his blue period, you probably know him <laughs> from a different period than when he was in his abstract period. Um, yeah. So as I said in, in a movie once, uh, a documentary about Dell, for me, Dell was the great and powerful Oz. He was scary. He was larger than life. But... He was also a man literally from Kansas trying to find his own way home. And uh, because I grew up with an alcoholic father, I recognized Dell's alcoholicness and other addictions. So I wanted to learn from him, but I kept a certain distance from him on a personal level because it was too similar to my relationship with my grandfather. And so for my own health, I kept a certain distance while still learning from him. You know, one of the things Dell once said in class is trust the teaching, not the teacher. And, you know, I love that I just love that. Yeah. The teaching, not the teacher. Yeah. Right. Because as teachers, we are all human, which means we all make mistakes. We're all flawed. Uh, one of my favorite therapists I ever had once said to me, I can't promise you I'm not going to make a mistake. I can't promise you that I'm not going to hurt you or ignore you in one of our sessions. What I can promise is that if I do and you tell me, I will do my very best to listen to you and hear it. That's lovely. I love that. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, and so as such with Dell, there were so many things I learned from an artistic level, some of the human stuff I learned from him. I also was honored when he invited me to go with him to Samhain, which is what is known as Halloween, and go with him to his uh, uh, coven and, you know, and spend Samhain celebration with them which I did. And um, that was a really interesting and enjoyable experience. And uh, at the end, Dell and I hugged and that was the only other time, that was the only time we hugged. You know, with Dell, there's a certain period of time. It was almost like you, a mark that you'd made it somewhere. If you went or were able to spend time with him in his apartment, which is filled with books and, and cats and everything. And, and you know, um, so, there, but there also, on the other hand with Dell, I always would have to keep uh, reintroducing myself to him all the time because I knew that he knew who I was, but he didn't know my name. And, you know, that was fine. So I got from Dell what I got. And, you know, another massive influence uh, that doesn't get talked about enough is Martin DeMott. Right. And Martin DeMott right. was the first ever Second City Training Center artistic director. And if Dell's brilliance was on forms and group work, Martin's brilliance was on two-person scenes. 
I've never seen anybody better at creating, getting two-person scenes out of people than Martin DeMott. And uh, uh, I saw some of his group shows and, and they weren't as good because he was essentially trying to make a, two, a group, a two-person scene, which didn't work because it was the group dynamic. And uh, uh, so, you know, but Dell and Martin were like flip sides of the same coin. And much like, you know, much like Van Gogh and Gauguin did not like each other's work, Dell and Martin did not like each other's work and they didn't like each other on a personal level, probably like Gauguin and Van Gogh did, you know, and part of the lesson of, of Gauguin and Van Gogh to me is that they were both master artists and what they saw that they didn't like about each other's work was right from their viewpoint, but it was also wrong because they were both master artists and they both had amazing gifts to give to the world. Uh, I kind of feel that way about Dell and Martin, uh, almost as if, if Dell was my artistic father, uh, Martin was my artistic mother. And, and when I talk about, the, people ask me who are like, what's it like to study with both of them? You know, I often say that like, Dell was magic and Martin was magical. Dell was a sorcerer and Martin was a unicorn. <laughs> and both are necessary and both are needed in this world. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, and I often quote from Martin as well. Like, you know, just like a lot of people quote from Dell, as I do. And I also try to quote from everybody I've learned from if I am saying what they've said, because so much of improvisation is an oral art form, even though we now have at least 100 improv books out there. But yes. still so much of it is an oral art form, not in the books in the moment of the classroom. But you can read all those books outside of it. But in the classroom, it's still an oral art form. Yes. All the way going back from... Viola and Neva and, and the, Jew, the Jewish way of sharing information through stories, you know, uh, that is why when I'm quoting somebody, I say their name, you know, this is what Michael Gellman said, this is what Don DePolo said, this is what Paul Sills said, this is what David Shepard said, you know, this is what Viola said, this is what Susan Messing says, you know, because if they've said it, I want them, I want whoever's in the room to know that it was said by somebody rather than I'm thinking that yeah. it's me. And um, so, you know, I quote Martin a lot, just like I quote Dell. And everybody has, who's ever studied with Martin has tons of Martin quotes that they just love to be able to share. I mean, for me on a human level, he's the first person who I heard ever say, life is about possibility. And of course, the sub part of that is, and the more you learn and the more you're open to, the more possibilities can arrive. Yes, yes. And the more you can engage in those possibilities. Oh, and what yeah. I liked about the concept of life is about possibilities is it embraces the idea of life as a thing of abundance rather than deprivation. I love that. Abundance rather than deprivation. That's wonderful. Yes. Scarcity um, thinking, scarcity thinking. Right. And doesn't that tie into like those first moments of any improv scene when you don't know what's happening or who you are, or what you are, or what your relationship, any of those things, it's open, this open thing that could be. And if you have a scarcity mindset, all you're going to see is all the things you don't have. But if you can have an abundant mindset, or as I talked about before, peace with ambiguity, you can be open to all the possibilities until the scene itself announces itself. Now, I think one of your forms is called the Organic Herald. 
Uh, yes, that's a class that I teach, yes. And can you just tell me a little bit about that? What that well, means? It, uh, uh, it sounds more fancy than it is, but <laughs> uh, when I learned the Herald from, uh, originally from a guy named Alan Bernowski, but then later through Dell, the, what's, what I'm calling the organic Herald is how the Herald was done at that time and done originally in San Francisco and done originally in Chicago when Dell first came back to Second City in 72 or 73 to become its director again, directing people like Belushi and Bill Murray and Gilda Ratner. Um, but that was a very different form and way of doing the Herald. And uh, later on in the 80s, when Dell and Sharna got together and uh, he became the director, artistic director of IO, he, they modified the Herald to be from what it was to what it's now known as uh, and the way it's done now and the way it is in the book, uh, Truth and Comedy. And that became what most people know as the Herald. So as such, rather than that being a modified Herald compared to what was done before, that became, you know, sort of supplanted everybody's idea of what a Herald is. So it became easier for me to call the organic Herald, organic Herald, rather than saying something like original Herald. Because to me, the, I was going to ask you, maybe you could describe what the Herald is in, in, a, in a few words or sentences or paragraphs, because not all of our listeners may be familiar with the term Herald. Okay, so, uh, and, you know, if anybody's hearing the world Herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, that's what I thought it was for the longest time as well. So it's named <laughs> Herald, like the human being, uh, uh, because Dell made a joke about the Beatles and naming something like the Herald. Uh, so that name stuck. Um, the way the Herald is taught now in most places, which is the way it's uh, in the book, is that there will, you will get a suggestion. There'll be some sort of opening game or, or movement or opening exercise in which the group explores the idea, but going farther away from the idea, more like what does the idea suggest to what does that suggest to what does that suggest? And where are you with that from the outside of it? And then breaking into a three two-person scenes. And that's considered the first beat. Then there's some sort of game of some kind, whether it be like an actual short form game or a game within the scene uh, uh, after that first beat, some sort of game that comes out of it. And then we go back to the same three two-person scenes, but they're further along, and that's considered the second beat. And then there's another game. And then there is the three th scenes returning for a third time in which they conclude. And then there is either the conclusion of that with them like that, uh, just the third two-person scene, or a wrap-up game or scene, or a just an end run of different scenes depending upon which way you're learning the Herald and how it goes. And uh, the Herald, the, and I often think of that Herald as a similar thing as like a foxtrot. Like to the outside world, <laughs> it looks like you're doing something, you know, there's so much structure to that particular Herald that it's like the foxtrot. These are the steps, this is where you go, this direction you go, and you do this and you just follow it. You're gonna look like you're dancing. You're actually gonna be dancing. But the original Herald, uh, what I call the organic Carol was much more like jazz dancing or, you know, uh, as opposed to something as structured as the Foxtrot. And it was much more like other types of dance that were much more freeform. And that time period, you would get the suggestion, 
but instead of using the suggestion to create other suggestions, create other suggestions, create other suggestions to expand, you would dive into the suggestion and deconstruct it and open it up and see all the things that are in it and then create a series of scenes and monologues and things revolving around that theme and always returning to the theme. And, uh, uh, and that's the Herald that I learned from. So of course that's the Herald that I prefer because it's what I learned, right. you know, uh, uh, you know, like obviously that Herald is tougher because there aren't the constraints within it that, you know, you do the other Herald, you know, it's going to run about 20, 25 minutes and you can have a certain amount of success just by following those steps. Whereas with the other one, cause it's so free form, it could turn into something brilliant or it could turn into a long sludge of nothing. <laughs> and, and you don't know how long it's going to go. Maybe it's going to go 15 minutes. Maybe it's going to go 90 minutes. You don't know. You're just going to, and uh, I'm more of an organic intuitive person. So I prefer that. I prefer forms that are more free forms or mid forms that incorporate multiple styles. But I do understand the values of the other forms. So that would be for anybody the difference between the two. Now, I would say that the organic intuitive stuff requires a different level of discipline because there is no internal structure. So you have to create your own structure and discipline on the fly versus counting on knowing the form steps to guide you. So if I'm understanding, you can get an initial in the organic, you might get an initial suggestion of Apple. And then you riff off of that. Yes. Okay. And, and yes. improv is so much like jazz because we're riffing off of each other is what we're doing. It's spontaneous. Um, it's so much like the musical form of jazz, I think, when it's yes. we play it. I love it so much. Now, um, because you were Second City early on, you were there when Fred Katz was there. Yes. I called him Mr. Second City because... Uh, here in Chicago, uh, the Chicago Cubs, the, the guy who was like the heart and soul of the Cubs when I was coming up was a guy named Ernie Banks, and he was Mr. Cub. And for me, Fred Kaz was Mr. Second City. You know, um, he was the heart and soul of the place, you know, uh, even though you had amazing people like Joyce Sloan and Sheldon Batinkin, uh, Don DiPolo, you know, and Bernie Sollins, but Fred was there, there. He was the one actually part of the on stage in every night, uh, part of that process, guiding the improvisers uh, that were, or the guiding the actors through what was happening. And yeah, he was, he was just amazing. And he started out as a jazz pianist and he had to stop because he lost part of his finger. I did not know that. Oh. Yeah, so as such, he couldn't play professionally at the level that he needed to. And he ended up playing with Second City and then that became his jazz expression. The genius of a musical director like Fred and Laura Hall. Yes. Just beyond belief to be that in sync with everybody. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I've seen Mike Dakota do the same thing because yes, I've worked Mike. with Mike Dakota on a show called Storybox and he was just as brilliant, you know, and uh, uh, Ruby Streak took over for Fred and she was amazing as well. And, and like you said, Laura Hall is astounding. The musical directors are, if you have a great one, are irreplaceable. So what, what about musical improv for you? Did you uh, 
Oh, I suck at it. Unlike my friend Stacy Smith, who was your first ever interview. Yes. <laughs> Stacy is so profoundly talented at musical improv. You know, she actually becomes even more of herself when she's singing than when she's in a scene. And she's great in scenes, but yeah. when she sings, this other thing just comes out and she shines. You know, uh, uh, she's one of the few people that I believe is, like I said, is even more truly herself when she's singing than when she's not. And she is so profoundly good. I think she's one of the top five musical improvisers I've ever seen. And yet for me, even though I did singing telegrams for three years of my life, I have never done well at musical improv. Uh, I, I know some of the philosophies of it. Uh, I think of it in some ways as like math because there's such a structure to it. And the kind of thing that the idea is with musical improv, you never sing new information. You only sing restating the information that happened and your perspective on it. You don't introduce new information that moves the story or the scene forward. Uh, and I know that you think of the rhyming word first before you get to what you're starting to sing and figure it out on the way. Sometimes for me, that just feels too much like math, but that could just be because I'm not good at it. And, and like I said, I, I did singing telegrams for three years. Wow. So I used to have a good voice. I do not have a good singing voice anymore. That's been too wait, long. Wait, wait, yeah. wait, then I got to interrupt you here. It's not about your voice. It's about your commitment. Because I don't have a great, I, well, I just love musical improv. It's, it's something I adore. And I don't have a great voice. Okay. And, and, but I do it anyway. Once I was in a group and I, I wasn't getting into the musical numbers and the fellow that was directing at the time said, well, you don't really have such a good voice. Did that stop? No, it did not stop me. It made me more determined to do it because it's about the commitment. That's all it is. But people have their likes and their dislikes. I get it. I understand. But it's hard, <laughs> it's hard for me to believe that you stunk at it. That's just well. Let me tell you this. The last time I sang in public was in Tokyo. I was part of a friend's uh, talk game show, which was that there were five of us and one of us was telling a lie and the other four were telling the truth. Uh -huh. And we we're all telling truths about us, you know, like this one central story. Each one had their own central story. One of it was a lie. We ourselves didn't know who was lying. We only knew if we were telling the truth. And I told the story about doing singing telegrams. And uh, uh, this one specific thing that happened when I was doing singing telegrams on Valentine's Day, and I'm dressed up in a Cupid costume with uh, <laughs> uh, diapers and wings and a bow and arrow and, and balloons. And... Uh, after, after I told the story, after I was done, uh, they took a break and we came back, then we get questioned by the audience and the audience asked me to sing. And I sang the happy birthday song that I used to sing. And I even tried it a couple of times before I sang it during the break. Cause I was sure they were going to ask me that. And then when it came time to vote, the audience could say their opinion, you know, sort of like a, a judgment before they voted, uh, not just individually, but as a whole. And one woman was like, your voice is so bad. I would never pay to hear it. And I was like, oh no. Oh, and I was like, and yet in that moment, I couldn't disagree with her because I heard how much my voice had changed from when I was singing a lot in my late 20s. So it's like a muscle that is atrophied. Right. And, you know, our voices get deeper, anyways. So my speaking voice is really good. My singing voice can barely hold a note anymore or be able to do some of the things that you used to do. And so when she said that, I'm like, you know, you're right. 
Uh, and I made up my mind. I'm like, well, if I ever tell the story again and someone asks me to sing, I'm going to say no. Because uh, it's, it's almost like asking a former National Basketball Association player to dunk when they haven't dunked a ball in 20 years and their bodies change and they can go to do it and they can't do it and they just look stupid and they're like, as opposed to when they used to be able to fly around. Uh, I have thought about reaching out to Mike or Laura asking him for uh, voice lessons or voice techniques that right. I could work on. Just not because I'm gonna start singing improvisation again, but if I'm singing in the car again, I, I don't wanna be going, ooh, ow, ow, ooh, stop, stop. You know, my dad was a professional singer. Before oh, wow. he became an entertainer with Ice Page, he was a singer in a trio that had a gig at the Conrad Hilton. And then he used to perform around at state fairs singing. So, and my mom had a horrible voice. So uh, uh, like, even as a kid, I would tell her to stop singing. <laughs> uh, uh, but for a while I had a really good voice. And I think maybe the thing that prevents me from the commitment is my memory of how I used to sound versus how I'm sounding now. Right. Well, I've always sounded the same. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, and they'd be wonderful people. Now, you know, Mike is now a captain flying planes. Right? Talk about transformation. Isn't it great? Isn't it great? Yeah. But Dina Christ is She's a beautiful too. teacher. Oh, my God. I just love working with her. She's great. So adorable. I was last in Boston. I hung out with both of them. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 And then I got to perform with Deanna uh, uh, on a show with Sean Landry and Hans Yes, Summer. I saw that. I saw that. Oh, great. That was yeah. so fun playing with them. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. You know, I met so many friends through improv and even through my podcast, they become my friends. I get to know them and just it's just wonderful to meet so many incredibly talented people while I stand that I always think of that um, Chris Farley routine with uh, with uh, Paul McCartney, and he goes, uh, 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 <laughs> "Remember when you were uh, with the Beatles?" <laughs> DJ Dave, remember the time when you guys performed together at I.O.? Remember, remember? Yeah. Susan, remember that time you played with Rachel Mason? Remember, remember? <laughs> oh, that's right. We had talked about possibly doing a scene. Although I'm not in makeup or anything, but we talked possibly about maybe doing a short scene. We don't have to, but. Well, there, before we do, there's a, a couple things I want to share with you because it ties yes. into part of what we were talking about. Yes, of course. Um, my biggest discovery when I was doing my global improv walkabout, which was meant to be just the thing to do in between things before it became its own transformation. And I came out of it transformed now knowing like this is my third act. And of course, they have to be in the rest of the world to have a third act because there are no third acts in America. But in the rest of the world, I have a third act that's come out of the global improv walkabout, but now it's its own thing. Um, the moment of discovery, the biggest moment of discovery I had is I was in an airport in Vienna eating a Vienna pretzel when all of a sudden I had like an Oprah Winfrey aha moment. And that moment was for me was the discovery. It's like, oh, in Chicago, I made tables for others to sit at. But in Europe, I have a seat at the table. In Chicago, I created the Chicago Improv Festival, the College Improv Tournament, the Teen Comedy Fest, Chicago Podcast. So many of those things are setting tables for other people to sit at. And I was very proud of that work. But anybody who owns a restaurant knows nobody asks you to come sit down and have lunch or dinner with them. They want to be recognized by you when they come in because that feels good. But they have a seat at the table. 
Nobody said, you know, and, and I was very proud of that work that I did for those 20, 23 years, right. making those tables for others to sit at. It's, uh, uh, was a really wonderful thing to be able to do. But in Europe, I had a seat at the table because people were asking me to do things, asking me to perform, asking me to teach, asking me to be on podcasts, asking me to do something creative with them, you know, and I don't get asked very much things like that in Chicago because everyone has predominantly probably, I'm guessing, just seen me as a producer because for 20 years, that's what I did. I never performed at the Chicago Improv Festival because I never wanted something bad to happen on stage and me not be able to go somewhere to one of our many venues and help take care of it. I didn't want to be saying to somebody, look, I know I invited you to this thing and you're a guest of my party and I'm sorry the set fell down on you, but boy, if you saw my edit and my character, it would have been totally <laughs> worth it for you. So instead, I never performed at CIF and so a lot of people only know me in, in Chicago as that person uh, uh, who does stuff like that. Maybe they know me for other things that, you know, who knows what people know you for. Um, but in Europe, people were asking me to do things and it was wonderful because I was an improviser and an artist first before I became a producer. Right. You know, my only question at the time is, is this magic that I'm experiencing just here in Europe or is it in other parts of the world? Because after having that kind of acceptance, I wanted to move to Europe. I was like, okay, let's go. Uh, but I wanted to challenge myself to see if there was similar things in other parts of the world. And if there was, great. If there wasn't, then I know not to stay there. But I found over time that I also have a seat at the table in Asia and I have a seat at the table in Oceana. And that is really wonderful. It's like a, a life enhancing uh, joy. It's one of the joys of my life is to be able to have that beyond just the passion of it, but be able to have that. Um, that was my big discovery that I made when being on my global improv walkabout. My big discovery that I made during the two and a half years of COVID was this. And I, and I discovered about a year ago or half a year ago, which is this. I am an extrovert by nature. I'm an introvert by trauma. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Uh-huh. And, you know, once I realized that, because I was like, oh, look at who I was when I was seven, eight, nine. I was an extrovert. And then when the bad things happen, 9, 10, 11, 10 and 11, not 9, 10 and 11 and 12, I became an introvert to protect myself. Right. And, and those were back in the days, pre-Phil Donahue, pre-Oprah Winfrey, when nobody talked about shit. And, you know, mental health was not even a thing to even begin to say we should have discussions about. And everything was kept quiet and silent in the John Wayne Eisenhower era of America culture. Right. And um, and then once I realized, oh, I'm an extrovert, but I'm an introvert because of trauma, I gave myself permission to start being an extrovert again and know that it's okay. And then as I wrote about that on Facebook, several people I know who are very talented, very funny improvisers ended up saying, that's amazing. I now realize I'm the opposite. I'm an introvert by nature and an extrovert by trauma. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I talk about when I teach sometimes is we have all experienced trauma. Everybody, and, everybody has. And we have all experienced every emotion a human can have. And we've all experienced every status a human can have, you know, and, and we've been good and we've been bad. And 
we've been hurt and we hurt and we've cheated and we've been cheated on all those things. You know, we've betrayed people. We've been betrayed. We've befriended people and we've been befriended every kind, you know, by a certain point in your adult years, every kind of human experience you've already had. And so to me, part of improvising in a healthy way is being able to access it, to be able to take, as Dell said, take the facts of your life and turn it into the fiction by putting it through the machine of improvisation. Right. And while I do believe that improvisation can be therapeutic, especially in the types of settings like applied improvisation and social work and things like that, uh, I think that when it's being done for art or entertainment, any therapy that comes out of it is like a side product, a side process, a side gift, as opposed to the intent. And uh, the other thing that I learned that was huge when I was traveling around the world is this. Undeclared boundaries are cultural, personal, and artistic assumptions. Yeah, say that one more time. Yeah, every time I say this, people, they always ask me to say it a second time. They get the same look that you just had on your face as they're processing it. They always ask me to say it again because it's big and it's deep. Undeclared boundaries are cultural, personal, and artistic assumptions. So now when I teach, I spend a lot of time having everyone either, I talk about the ground rules and boundaries that I'm setting up to work, but then I also at points have people declare boundaries with each other. And, and I never let anyone get away with, you know, the, when they say, oh, you know, the usual stuff. When they say something like the usual stuff, that's the undeclared boundaries that comes from a cultural, personal, or artistic assumption. You know, you could have two talented improvisers or two mediocre improvisers, one from UCB only doing the game of the scene, one from the ground links completely focused on character and put them in a scene or a show together and they might think the other person sucks. And they might think the other person's a bad improviser because the person from UCB is looking for the game of the scene and the person from Groundlings is looking for the character. And so they're operating across purposes without even necessarily knowing. So that's part of what I mean by like, art, you know, artistic assumptions. So to me, we have spent so much time over the 60 years of improvisation talking about the forms that we've created and whether or not long form or short form or this form, free form, mid form, uh, any of those things. And I hope in the next five years, we spend more, and it seems to be going in this direction. We spend more time talking about how we play together. You know, and it's just like in sports, if somebody says, you know, we're playing soccer together and they say, don't kick to my right foot. I'm not very good with my right foot. And they're your teammate. You're not going to kick it to the right foot. You're going to kick it to the left foot because you want the best results. If you kick it to the right foot, you're just being an asshole. Right. right. And so, you know, the things that people have shared with setting up their boundaries, you wouldn't, a lot of those things you would never have known if they not said it. People saying I'm blind in one eye. I can't hear out of one ear. Uh, I've got a bad foot. Don't jump on me. All the different things that they say, do or don't do, those are things you would never necessarily be able to see just by looking at them. Right, exactly. And uh, uh, just because everyone's also had trauma at some point in their lives, we have a million different triggers. There is no one specific trigger because there's, you know, just like Jeffrey Court said, there's individual psychology, so there's individual triggers. But operating in a group, it's the same group. So, so to me, being able to come from that place of, Undeclared boundaries are cultural, artistic, and personal assumptions. Getting those assumptions on the table, to me, it cuts to the chase 
faster than trying to develop group mind. Yeah. Because group yeah. mind concept is you're going to hang out with your friends for two or three months, get to know each other, and then you'll have it. Whereas to me, instead of creating a group mind, it creates a group consent and a group trust. Uh, uh, I've had some struggles with the phrase safe space. Uh -huh. What I've heard recently from a improviser in England on a panel discussion, she said something that I love even more than safe space. Because of course I want a safe space, but she said, rather than a safe space, we ought to have negotiated spaces. And what I love about the idea of a negotiated space is that everybody is equal in that negotiation, which makes, and that itself, because sometimes a safe space isn't safe um, because it's so restricted for some people. It's very safe for some people, but very unrestricted for others. And so how do you find that middle ground? And to me, that mid-ground is being able to create that sense of a negotiated space. And um, to quote or paraphrase Patty Stiles, you know, who is an amazing improviser and an amazing teacher uh, and just astoundingly talented, she said, you know, our two biggest things as, as teachers and directors is to both create a safe space, but also create a space that encourages artistic growth that is beyond where your safe place is and and again i'm paraphrasing she said it better than me but so to me a negotiated space is part of the answer that gets to the gets through the idea of undeclared boundaries are artistic personal and cultural assumptions so those are the things that i learned in my global improv walkabout and those are the things that i learned on COVID. what i'm learning next is that the world is still there and that i love being with people in person because my personal bliss is creating and connecting. And you do an awesome job of that, Mr. Jonathan Pitts. What, oh, thank you. What a delight to have you on today. Our two-part interview has just been, I've learned so much and identified so much. So I really thank you for all the personal sharing that you provided to me and our listeners today. So what's next? Um, well, I am associated with a movie, a feature film that has been uh, based on a real life story about my dad, his chimp and a serial killer. I'm a consultant for that movie and uh, I'm gonna be involved in another way that I can't yet reveal. Uh, but that movie is gonna start going to movie festivals. Uh, Zachary Quinto, the guy who plays uh, Spock in Star Trek and also uh, in American Horror Story and Heroes plays the character based on my father. Jacob Elordi from uh, uh, Euphoria is playing the serial killer. And then a 10-year-old girl in an amazing, astounding head-to-toe chimp costume is playing Spanky the Chimp. And so uh, I'm involved with that. And I'm uh, interested in exploring that because that becomes its own journey. And outside of that, I have different gigs already started to line up for the summer and the fall. Yeah. Uh, both in America and hopefully again around the world. And I will go back to being able to do what I love, which is creating and connecting and moments like this with artists and people such as yourself and other people around the world and just keep doing that until it's time to stop. Well, that time to stop is a long way from today. And I- Oh, well, thank you. 
I'm so grateful, so grateful for our chat today. I've learned so much more and you're just such a wonderful person to be around. And a oh, thank you, Margaret. Likewise. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much. So we'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, but I'm sure we'll be seeing each other as the world opens up again, Jonathan. Yes, and Margot, thank you for what you do, both as a social worker and a human and an improviser and, and applying those things uh, online and in person. You are also adding so much to the world. So thank you for that, Margot. Thanks. See you soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.